I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Diva Behavior, the podcast. I'm your host, Molly Molshine, and we are tackling a pretty serious topic today. We're going to be talking all about disordered eating and how it is or isn't affected by celebrity culture. And this is inspired, you guessed it, by the recent drama surrounding Teddy Mellencamp of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and her truly, truly unique diet program, All In. So if you've been following the drama on Instagram, you have probably seen some of the abusive screenshots and crazy photos of quote-unquote lettuce burritos, which is just a piece of lettuce around a tiny sliver of avocado and some shredded vegetables that all come allegedly from this program, All In with Teddy Mellencamp. People are accusing Teddy and the accountability coaches who she hired of promoting eating disordered behavior because the program only allowed people to eat 400 to 600 calories per day, which is not enough for any adult. It encouraged them to also do about an hour of cardio per day, allegedly. And the program also linked each client with an accountability coach. And if you look on Instagram or on Reddit or on any of the places where these stories are being compiled, a lot of these accountability coaches, they were scolding people for eating really, really small amounts of food and just not being nice and sort of trying to bully and shame people into sticking to this quote-unquote diet plan. So Teddy has come under fire for this. She has since announced that she is not coming back to the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Of course, I don't think she or Bravo would confirm if this was part of the reason why she's being booted from the show because if they did confirm it, then, well, if Teddy confirmed it, she would have to admit that her program was unhealthy. And if Bravo confirmed it, that would open up a real can of worms for them in terms of just how many products the Real Housewives push that are not the healthiest thing in the world. I mean, nothing that the other Real Housewives have endorsed has come anywhere near this level of promoting unhealthy habits or lifestyle, to my knowledge, or from what I can remember. But the shows do glorify things like binge drinking, and this is definitely not something that Bravo would want to be under the microscope about. So I don't know if we will ever see anything else on the show about this particular storyline anymore. But something else that was a little bit disturbing throughout this entire brouhaha was that many of Teddy's castmates were sticking up for her and saying that her brand All In is totally healthy and there's nothing wrong with it, which is by all accounts just not true. Another thing that came up recently was that one of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills was accused of promoting eating disordered behavior for her daughters. What people sort of ended up agreeing on at the reunion where this conversation took place was that parenting can't cause eating disorders, which, you know, doesn't really ring true. So I asked my guest today to talk about that a little bit, and she had some really interesting insight into whether that is true or false, and it is false. 
Anyway, back to the Teddy Mellencamp drama. The cherry on top of this whole thing is in order to participate in this diet plan, you had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So if you wanted to pay these people over $600 a month to berate you over text message about how you're eating too much lettuce, you also had to swear that you wouldn't tell anyone. You know, if the rules of your diet program sound anything like the rules of Fight Club, it's probably not a great choice. It's probably not a great diet program. And as we learned from my guest today, Dr. Lauren Mulheim, maybe there aren't any good diet programs. Definitely there probably aren't any good diet programs that are being pushed by celebrities who aren't dietitians. So Dr. Mulheim is the director of Eating Disorder Therapy LA. She is a psychotherapist and an eating disorder specialist. She is incredibly well-versed and knowledgeable on this subject, and she tolerated all of my incredibly basic questions about eating disorders, disordered eating, how that's impacted by the media and celebrity culture, and Also, she sort of schooled me on this concept called intuitive eating, which I had seen thrown around on social media a lot over the past year or so, and I didn't really ever look into it, so she kind of lays out exactly what it is, and she also recommends a lot of resources for anyone who does want to disentangle themselves from diet culture and start listening to their body. I mean, easier said than done, right? I would love to disentangle myself from diet culture, but it's just been indoctrinated into me since the time I was a little kid. I think most people listening will have some level of feeling the same way about that because like Dr. Malheim says, dieting is a gigantic industry, not only in the US, but in the world. So there are a lot of really smart and powerful people who have a vested interest in keeping us all indoctrinated into diet culture. So, you know, I am definitely someone who has dieted in the past. I pretty much am dieting probably all the time. I mean, maybe I will be for my entire life. Maybe I won't. This conversation has definitely given me a lot to think about in terms of whether that is a good idea or not and whether it is serving me or not. So I'm definitely going to keep thinking about that going forward. If you enjoy this episode, please rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Feel free to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Molly Molshine. If you want to know more about Dr. Molheim and the work she does, you can go to eatingdisordertherapyla.com and please enjoy the podcast. Some people think Diva's a bitch. I never said that. Diva Great gowns, beautiful gowns. Diva Behavior, the podcast. So I'm here with Dr. Malheim, who has her own group practice in LA, and she's an eating disorder specialist. Um, I know you said that you're not a huge Real Housewives of Beverly Hills fan. Is that accurate to say? That's accurate. (laughs) Yes. But thanks for having me for this discussion. I sent you some coverage about this whole story with Teddy Mellencamp. What, What are some of the first thoughts that came into your head about this? It's um, scary to me as an eating disorder professional to to see celebrities promoting such restrictive and extreme practices. And I have a lot of concerns for, you know, people who who follow celebrities on these journeys. And it's it looks very glamorous when you see a celebrity offering these things and the promise of being 
more of uh, meeting the cultural ideal is very seductive to most people. And so I think people are very easily led on these these journeys that can really be so dangerous for them. So I, I see a lot of people with eating disorders and disordered eating who have really suffered a lot. Um, not that they're all driven by celebrities, but I, I think our culture is so focused on thinness and wellness and a lot of people feel tremendous pressure to go down that route. Right. So with Teddy Mellencamp's plan, it's hard to find the exact facts about it because she had everybody who participated sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. Would you say that is like red flag number one? (laughs) Well, uh, maybe not red flag number one, but it's concerning, right, that that no one can even talk about it and that that she's not a health professional and how can people check with their doctors to see if it's advisable if they can't discuss it, right? So, you know, in an ideal, you know, she has these disclaimers that she's not a medical professional. It's like, okay, well then, if someone were to take this to their doctor and say, should I do this? What information can they take to their doctor if you've made them sign that away? Right. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. And most of the plans from what has come out about it, a lot of the time she has people eating only 500 to 600 calories per day. Is that ever a good idea? No. Um, I don't know any dietitian who would recommend going under four times that for uh, a human adult. (laughs) Um, So that's very concerning. Yeah. One thing that I found really interesting about the plan in reading up on it was how it sort of takes a lot of the components of, you know, maybe a quote unquote healthier diet plan and pushes them to an extreme, like having a coach who's who's holding you accountable and tracking your calories and everything. Is this part of the danger of a plan like this? Because it it does sort of just look like any other plan maybe that a dietitian would put you on, but in a much more extreme way. Well, I, I think there's a problem with weight loss and dieting in general in that we have no research to show that anyone can maintain a diet long term. And 95% of the people who lose weight gain it all back um, within a couple of years. And most of the people who maintain significant weight loss do it by extreme measures. So they are working out several hours a day and eating very restrictively and and make it their job to maintain this weight loss. And so many of those people then turn it into a career where they proselytize and train other people. And that's a way to support maintaining a suppressed weight, which most people can't do. And so I think there's dangers with all kinds of dieting and this is just more extreme and the accountability and the um, focusing kind of reminds me of the biggest loser where there's this, you know, enforcement, maybe not as much shaming, but this accountability that, um, you know, that, that does probably have some shame elements, um, you know, from, from some of what was shared. Yeah, the word accountability is doing a lot of heavy lifting, it seems, in this uh, in this particular diet plan, because like you're saying, it definitely does seem to be a little more on the shaming side, not so much, 
you know, holding you accountable for making good decisions, right? Well, and, you know, what's a good decision, right? I mean, this idea that we should override our body's need for food, I don't think that is a good decision personally. And I, right. I've seen that taken to its extreme and people who ignore hunger and end up with very severe eating disorders or they end up with severe, well, they end up with severe eating disorders in one form or another. Either they end up with, you know, a restrictive eating disorder or a purely restrictive eating disorder like anorexia, or they end up restricting and then um, naturally compensating for that restriction through binge eating. Today, we're getting a little bit more understanding that disordered eating takes so many different forms, which you sort of just alluded to. I mean, like when I was growing up, we had an awareness of anorexia and bulimia because of, you know, Degrassi and whatever other after school special we were watching. <laughs> but I know, can, can you talk a little bit more about the different types of disordered eating that you might see in your practice? Yeah, so basically... They all come from restriction. One form is just where someone stays locked in restriction, and, and this is the anorexia you know, disorder and probably variations on it from um, anorexia, which we also see in higher weight bodies and is given the name atypical anorexia, but people who are in naturally bigger bodies and who are restricting and maybe congratulated as being successful dieters through significant restriction, they can have anorexia and have every bit as serious a um, medical issues as, as people who are in lower weight bodies with anorexia. So that's one form. And then we get the more typical response is that, you know, restriction leads over time, the restriction breaks down over time. And we see people um, turning to binge eating, which is, of course, the body's survival instincts, because food is one of our basic needs. And so I always tell people that binging is your body working. It's, you know, telling you that you're not getting enough food. And, you know, the wisdom of your body is that it's going to make you seek out that food. And so, you know, bulimia and binge eating are also coming out of restriction. And when does dieting sort of tip into disordered eating, in your opinion? Is there, I guess there's probably no easy answer to that, right? Well, in the health at every size community that I'm a part of, I think we would say any deliberate restriction uh, would be disordered um, because we like people to focus on intuitive eating and listening to your body and um, not fighting against it, not eating according to external food rules. Um, that said, there are probably some people who restrict and it doesn't um, impact their life in a big way. Um, so other people might say that disordered eating really starts when um, the diet starts to have consequences, like it keeps you from going to social things, or you're skipping events because you want to work out, or you can't concentrate at work because you're so hungry. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm happy to hear you explain that because I had mentioned in sort of our emails going back and forth how I had seen this tweet where someone said, if you're doing any sort of restriction or dieting, you are engaging in disordered eating. And I was so confused by that because I didn't really I mean, I have because I have restricted in the past. I think a lot of people have. And I was like, oh, my God, do I have disordered eating? But what you've just said makes total sense that, yeah, maybe it is disordered. But if it's I guess when you're when it's affecting your life is when it becomes a real problem. Right. I mean, I'm I'm against any kind of deliberate restriction because I've seen 
the other side. I've seen, you know, what that drives in terms of eating disorders. Um, but but I, I definitely know some people can restrict and then stop. So so I don't advise it for any reason. But I think when it really starts to cause problems is when it you know impacts someone's functioning. Either their you know it could also affect their mood. Um, a lot of people are irritable and more moody when they're not eating. I mean, there's so many things that happen when someone is not eating enough, both you know mentally and physically. So. Um, food is, is so important and, um, you know, I really encourage people to, to not follow external food rules and, and try to change their bodies. And, and of course that's really challenging in our society because there is such a focus on thinness and people in larger bodies do experience weight stigma. So I think it's, um, easier said than done. Yeah. And just to get back to the media component of it, like I mentioned, when I was younger, I always knew what anorexia and bulimia were. And I knew, oh, that's bad. If you're going down that path or one of your friends is going down that path, you know, tell an adult or try to get her treatment. And then at the same time, every magazine that I was reading was like, you are only allowed to eat salmon. And if you eat anything but salmon, you lose the game of being a woman. So, I mean, do you, how much does talk of the media come up in your practice when you're talking to the people that you treat? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, you know, the, the development of an eating disorder is so complex and, you know, there's no single factor that causes an eating disorder, but certainly the the cultural climate with its focus on thinness and, and dieting does play a role. You know, we can't know, you know, how much of a role it specifically plays. But I think, like you said, people see that the people they admire doing these things. And so it, you know, it does seem like everyone's doing it. And I think there is a lot of pressure, you know, diet culture is kind of community building. People go on diets together and, you know, they connect um, over social media and, um, you know, it's, it's very enticing to people. Right. And now you've got this new culture of plastic surgery that I think makes it even even harder to parse what's real and what's fake and what's attainable and what's not. Like, you know, when reality stars go out and get a Brazilian butt lift and then they start a TV show about being healthy and working out and it's like, wait a minute, that's Definitely not from eating healthy. And I don't know. I think even just the word healthy now has so many different meanings. And that must be really frustrating for you too, right? Because yeah, it's really confusing. And, um, you know, because, uh, you know, so many of the behaviors that are seen as healthy um, really contribute to an eating disorder. So people see, you know, restrictive eating and exercise as healthy behaviors. But, but in reality, they can really be quite dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. So have you seen any changes in the effect of the media and celebrity on disordered eating over time throughout your practice or throughout your life? I, I think, you know, it's hard to, to talk about overall trends in that way, but I think definitely, um, you know, people are influenced by what they see on social media. I've definitely had um, you know, patients who were, um, had been influenced by, you know, social media or celebrities over time. And, um, 
you know, but there are many other things as well too <laughs> that that contribute. So it's hard to to parse out to parse out what's you know what's what. But I, I think it can certainly be a driver and um, you know a potentially dangerous trend. Yeah, one thing that always has been so strange to me is the notion that women's bodies can be on trend or off trend. So when I was, you know, in middle school and high school, the dominant body type was Nicole Richie and Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton when they were at their absolute thinnest. And I feel like that just burrowed into my head and has still never left. (laughs) And now it's like people are sort of trying to get these curves that are often surgically enhanced while also being extremely thin. So what are, what is your advice, I guess, about just trying to ignore that noise and ignore the trendiness of different body types? That's so hard. Um, you know, so I really encourage people to, um, vary their, their social media feeds because mainstream media and social media both tend to focus, or traditional social media tend to focus on the most ideal 1% of the population, which is really not representative of what the range of people look like. So, you know, we're overexposed to this narrow band and we don't see the, the broader range of diversity in all types of factors, including like skin color and body size and shape. And so one thing I think is helpful is to, you know, social media is the one thing that people can control. And so I encourage people to unfollow, um, you know, that the, those people with the ideal body type, um, and follow a more diverse range of people. And I think that does help kind of reset your range of what's normal from this narrow band to a much bigger band and is one of the things that can help. And then I do a lot of talking about just body diversity and how bodies are not meant to all be one, you know, one shape and size. And, you know, it would be like saying that every woman um, wears a size eight shoe when really there's a normal distribution of every characteristic, um, you know, within human uh, traits. So, you know, not everyone can stand on this you know, band. And so it's really understanding um, your own um, body shape and size, which is largely genetically determined and focused on accepting that and appreciating your body for what it can do versus trying to alter it to fit, you know, what society is saying is is trendy for the moment, um, because that's such a, a painful and, um, you know, uh, non-winning battle for most people right the shoe analogy makes so much sense and it's just like yeah why would I think I could fit into a size five shoe when that's not my shoe size I'm gonna need to I'm gonna use that (laughs) in my head (laughs) Um, well and and it's like you know accepting other things I think you know because there's in the U.S. there's a 70 billion dollar diet industry that preys upon us and makes us feel bad so that it can sell us products and sends us this message that we can alter our weight when really weight is as genetically determined as height and eye color, you know, but most people are not trying to alter their height. Uh, I mean, maybe they wear heels and and so do a little bit, but, you know, people are not like lying on stretchers overnight trying to, to stretch their their spines longer, you know, so it's something that people accept. Whereas with body weight, we we buy into this message that it's something we can alter. And so people spend a lot of effort and money trying to do that. 
Right. Why do you think it is that we fixate so much on body weight over maybe other characteristics? Well, partly because of diet culture, this $70 billion industry that, you know, makes us feel bad and then tries to sell us products to feel better. So, um, you know, and and there's this notion that it is something that you can alter. People accept that height is not alterable, but but there's this persistent myth sold by people like celebrities um, that that weight is something you can control and, and you can control it for a short time, but it usually backfires. And, and that's why we see people gaining weight over successive diets and actually dieting up the scale. We know that it backfires, um, but it's many years later. So people can get this short-term results. Um, and then there's people who are, who are naturally, naturally thin who believe that they've solved the puzzle and um, really maybe they just won the genetic lottery. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's something that goes on with just to bring it back to Teddy Mellencamp, there's, she's always saying that she lost a ton of weight and everything. And this is kind of gossipy to bring up and it's pretty rude, but people are pointing out online that there are no pictures of her when she allegedly was larger. So it's just like, is this, did that even happen? Or is she just naturally thin and now she's selling this crazy lifestyle? Yeah, there was a great article a while back um, by two researchers, um, Tracy Mann and Janet Tomayama, and it was what thin people don't understand about dieting. And it's basically that, that, you know, thin people feel like they have been successful dieters when really they're not looking at, you know, that, that they just, you know, were the winners in the genetic lottery. Right. And also, I think with Teddy's plan, it seemed like it, it relied a lot on willpower. And I think that's a pretty bad way to try and accomplish anything, right? Because I've read a lot of studies that say willpower is a finite resource. And once you exhaust it for the day, you're just going to end up doing whatever you wanted to do anyway, right? Is that something that comes into play in your practice at all? Well, willpower doesn't work for food because it's a basic need. So, you know, according to Maslow's hierarchy, there's five basic needs without which humans cannot live without. So, um, you know, it's food, water, air, warmth, and sleep. And if any one of those needs is not met, our body's job is to sound the alarm. You need this. You need this. You need this. And um, there's a, a great exercise we do um, that came out of um, one of the, um, you know, kind of educational materials for kids developed by Kathy Cater, where she talks about the air diet. And um, she has kids, you know, restrict their air and then, um, you know, and then go through the exercise, okay, and what type of breath do you take after you've held your breath? And, you know, do you take a little breath or do you take a big breath? Um, and how do you feel while you're holding your breath? And, you know, the answer is that people, when they're holding their breath, they're just focused on not getting enough air. And when you stop holding your breath, you take a big gulp of air. And, you know, it's like that with any one of those five basic needs. So that's why willpower is not supposed to work. Um, you know, humans would have died out as a species if, if we could willfully stop ourselves from eating. So, you know, bodies are, are very wise and they will keep you alive and they will turn, you know, make you seek out high calorie, high dense food if you've not been eating enough. 
Right. That's such a great analogy, again, with the air thing. Like, you can't will yourself into not breathing, so why would you will yourself into not eating? It's so simple, but it's so hard to think of these things when you've been conditioned your whole life in this diet culture. Yeah. There was another topic that came up with the show Real Housewives of Beverly Hills where they were debating about whether someone's parenting choices could leave their children more susceptible to developing an eating disorder later on in their life. And I guess the women took different sides and the ones who said no said eating disorders and any sort of mental health issue is not caused by environmental factors. It's caused by, you know, your underlying tendency to deliver, to develop that, I guess. I mean, those aren't the exact words they used, but (laughs) that was basically the the gist of it. So what do you have to say about that? Can someone's parenting or someone's environment contribute to their development of an eating disorder? So that's a great question. It's incredibly complex. We know that eating disorders are, are not caused by a single factor. It's usually... Um, a combination of genes and environment and their interaction. Um, One of the things we do know is that there is a large genetic component to an eating disorder. So it makes sense that, you know, parents who've had a history of an eating disorder may have a higher likelihood of having a child who has, you know, a predisposition to an eating disorder. Um, I don't think that parenting alone can, can cause an eating disorder in most cases. Um, are there, um, you know, things that parents might be able to do to, um, you know, to try to buffer against um, the impacts of the culture? Probably, but I, I see parents as, um, in many cases, parents are the the cultural the messengers through the culture, right? So parents are given through diet culture, these harmful messages that your kid needs to stay in a certain weight range, you know, I mean, and, and a lot of health professionals are sending these messages. So I think it's it's really daunting for parents. Many of them are influenced by diet culture themselves. So I don't think a, a parent could cause an eating disorder. But, you know, there there may be practices that, that parents do that unwittingly do, you know, encourage dieting behavior. And again, I I assume that, you know, all parents mean well, and, you know, even parents who encourage dieting, you know, they do that because they see that that's, or they believe that that's a way that's going to keep their child happy and healthy, and they're influenced by diet culture. Right. Uh, So, you know, that's, that's why I think diet culture itself is so dangerous, and we need to do much more work to educate people about the dangers of dieting and diversity of bodies. What are some things that parents could do to try and make sure that they're not passing on this sort of flawed way of thinking to their kids? Well, I think one thing is to try to discourage dieting or altering one's body shape, trying to encourage um, a broad range of foods and, and not to delineate between good and bad foods. I think keeping an eye on on a child, there's a lot of evidence that um some kids fall off their their weight charts and um, years before parents notice the eating disorder behavior. So I think, you know, monitoring a, a child's growth and, and seeing that, you know, some kids grow along the 75th percentile for weight, and that's always normal for that kid. And, and just like the shoe thing, some kids grow along the 25th percentile, and that's normal for that kid. And if there's a, a drop from percentages, um, that's something to be at least curious about. 
And I think, you know, talking positively about bodies, not disparaging one's own body, um, you know, and um, there's, you know, probably just building positive talk about bodies, not engaging in fat shaming um, of anyone is something that parents can do to try to build a, a body positive environment at home. Yeah, it's crazy. There wasn't even in my experience, like a word for fat shaming, you know, 10 years ago, it just was a fact of life, which is just so terrible. And now, I mean, do you see any positive changes with the fact that we are talking about it a little bit more? Yes, I think it is good that we are talking about weight stigma and fat shaming, but it's so ingrained in, you know, so many people. I mean, it's, I think we have a long way to go really before, you know, and when you look at how people in larger bodies are portrayed in media and, um, you know, it's, it's still really negative. Yeah, of course. And you had mentioned that telling kids that some foods are good and some foods are bad could maybe send them down the wrong path. So what if you, what if you're like a health nut and you're obsessed with not having your kids eat a lot of sugar and stuff like that? Is there a way to get that message across without promoting bad behavior or, you know, disordered behavior, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that could be problematic because kids are going to want what they're restricted from having. The parenting model that's usually encouraged is kind of a a junior model of intuitive eating. This, you know, kind of having exposure and allowance for all foods um, and and neutralizing it. So, you know, not teaching that any food has any higher moral value than any other food and really, you know, encouraging flexibility and allowing kids a range of foods. Now, that doesn't mean you have to only serve them desserts, but yeah, um, including desserts. And, you know, if they're not off limits or on a pedestal, kids will, you know, just kind of naturally, you know, gravitate towards healthier as well as less healthy foods. Um, kids are kind of naturally intuitive eaters. And then at some point, they're co-opted by diet culture and, and start um, eating according to these external rules. And, and we really don't want to mess with that. Can you give me some examples of, of what those external rules would be? Yeah, like, um, you know, not eating dessert or, you know, um, restricting certain food groups or not eating after a certain time or limiting quantities. Whereas intuitive eating would look like would look more like what? Would look more like listening to your body and honoring your hunger. You know, and and the kid version is that parents, um, there's a model developed by Ellen Satter, who's considered like the leading expert on childhood feeding, or one of them. And um, she has this division of responsibility that says parents determine what and, and when and children determine how much. So she recommends, you know, for each meal, putting out components and letting the child make their own plate from the different components. And she recommends even having um, some dessert out there um, with the meal and, you know, not like requiring the child to eat the vegetables in order to have the dessert. And that, you know, that way each um, food has, um, you know, the same kind of um, value and that the children, you know, fed that way kind of naturally um, choose a variety of foods. Yeah, it's so sad to see how, 
people kind of grow up hating vegetables because of the the force with which parents wield them. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, like, what message does that send where, you know, you have to finish your broccoli before you can have a cookie, right? It's just, um, it sets broccoli up for, you know, to be despised. Yeah, totally. So if I'm trying to intuitively eat and I get stuck in a cycle where my intuition tells me to eat, like, 900 cashews and a pint of ice cream and then I just hate myself and get angry at myself and then I just keep doing it over and over again that's not intuitive eating right it might be you know in that moment but usually if you're doing that your body will start to crave other things right so you know some people who've been in a cycle of dieting you know find that they kind of only want foods like that, that maybe they've been denying themselves. But usually after kind of honoring that, they their body will start to naturally, you know, gravitate towards a, a wider variety of foods. But I do know there, I, there was a dietitian I saw who um, posted that, you know, she didn't eat vegetables for a year when she gave up dieting because she just um, didn't want them. But, you know, after a time, she did reintegrate them. So, you know, intuitive eating kind of talks about gentle nutrition and honoring one's hunger and kind of doing away with all the dieting rules first, and then kind of nudging towards incorporating a nutritional component. So, you know, obviously, it's different for everybody. But so the, the goal would be to honor what you're wanting. And then, you know, thinking about like, okay, do I need to add any food groups to this meal to make it more complete. Is there a reason why we don't see celebrities pushing intuitive eating? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, it doesn't drive fast results, right? People don't see dramatic weight loss, right? So it doesn't it doesn't have the allure that I think a diet does, right? And, and you, you know, funnily, some of the studies that have compared intuitive eating to diets look at the fact that people don't lose weight quickly with intuitive eating. And it's like, of course, that's not what it's designed to do, right? Right. Um, it's not designed to produce weight loss at all. Um, and some people will lose weight when they start intuitive eating, and some people will gain weight. And, you know, it depends on their, their individual bodies. So, yeah, I think the only, um, you know, people who are really getting attention for promoting intuitive eating are, are the creators of intuitive eating. Right. And I guess there's no merch that you can really sell for intuitive eating because it's just everything. <laughs> well, I mean, there are definitely, um, you know, some anti-diet warrior dietitians and therapists who, um, you know, are selling some anti-diet stuff that, you know, does have some appeal, some appeal. Oh, that's um, but, cool. But it's, it, it's not mainstream. My first encounter with I think a celebrity espousing any sort of wellness was with Oprah, which I think a lot of people will probably have that in common with me. And it was this segment she did where she she was saying, diets don't work. I'm never dieting again. I'm not going to go on a diet. And I was 15 or 16 at the time. So I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. Who could say that diets don't work? How, how could this be? And then she goes on to explain that what she's doing now is – not a diet, but you have to stop eating at 6 p.m. every day. You have to exercise for X amount of minutes. You have to not eat this, this, and this. And it was just all these, like you said, external rules. And it just confused me so much from right. 
like from such a young age. And I think that's happening with a lot of these wellness influencers now too. Do you see a lot of people who are being kind of driven mad by the wellness movement too? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I just got an, uh, an email today, like, uh, about how, you know, my eating disorder turned into an exercise obsession, um, which is seen, you know, by many people as healthier and, and this person kind of went through it. And then like years later realized that that was just a, you know, a different variety of the eating disorder. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, in the health at every size community, we're constantly, dismayed by all the people who are now co-opting health at every size and intuitive eating into weight loss (laughs) plans. And now you get rewarded even more if you are becoming a compulsive exerciser because you can become a compulsive exercise influencer and you can get brand deals and you can make money off of being a compulsive exerciser in a way that 10 years ago did not exist. True. Yeah, totally true. What's the difference between, if any, what is the difference between health at every size and body positivity? Well, health at every size is a, first of all, it's like a copyrighted um, name and, you know, owned by the Association for Size, Diversity and Health. And it's a, a health movement that focuses on, you know, not trying to um, alter bodies and accepting, you know, health is much broader and looking at other factors like um, social factors that influence one's health and weight. Like, you know, people who are in marginalized communities don't have access to fresh vegetables. And so it's looking at kind of the social justice factors as well. And it came out of the fat activist movement. Body positivity, I think, is, you know, has been co-opted. And and there's a lot of people who say, you know, it came out of, you know, people in more marginalized bodies like black women and fat women. And now it's been co-opted by thin white women who say, like, look at me, I'm showing a teeny fold on my stomach. But that doesn't do anything to help people who are in more marginalized bodies, like people who are in fat bodies and people with darker skin whose bodies are still you know, pathologized, you know, there's, there's so many bodies that are marginalized that can't, you know, walk into clothing stores and and find clothing that fits them and, you know, can only shop online or have trouble fitting in, you know, airplane seats. And to be body positive, we have to make the world safe for all bodies. How can consumers recognize if a diet plan they're buying into is promoting disordered eating? I guess your advice would probably be any of them have a danger of that, right? That would be my advice. Yeah. Yeah. But certainly the more restrictive, um, you know, the more concerning it would be. Right. Sorry. Go and ahead. That's the thing is like, you know, people are, again, our bodies are, are not meant to restrict, you know, and your body should fight against that. And, um, you know, that's why I really discourage um, restricting. So if somebody is feeling like, you know, I, I want to look different, I want to feel better about myself, I want to exercise more, I want to make a change in my lifestyle, what is your advice to them? My advice is you can always focus on changing behaviors without focusing on the outcome. So, um, you know, people in all body shapes and sizes benefit from eating, you know, a balanced, satisfying diet and engaging in movement that makes their body feel good. And beyond that, my advice is um, there's not that much you can do to dramatically change 
your body in a way that you can keep up long term. So then there's a lot of work to do on body acceptance. And if people are in cycles of binge eating, certainly there's a lot we can do to reduce that cycling. And and people have so much shame and guilt when they're um, eating um, in that way and, and going against what they perceive as breaking their diet and they're beating themselves up for having poor willpower. So um, when we kind of work on breaking that cycle and building self-compassion and understanding that your body is working and, and not failing you, people do end up feeling a lot better and they feel better about themselves and then we can continue to improve self-esteem and body image. So, so doing some more of that internal work, I think, is, is more important than, than focusing on the, the body shape and size. What would your advice be for someone who maybe feels like they're sort of caught in the trenches of disordered eating, but not to an extent that they would need an inpatient program or something like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's many levels of care short of inpatient and people can, um, my first advice is to seek out a health at every size professional, whether it's a dietitian or a therapist. There's, you know, a podcast by Christy Harrison called Anti-Diet that is kind of a good overview of um, intuitive eating and health at every size. And I think that's a great way to get exposed to the ideas. And then, you know, seeking out intuitive eating, buying the book or the workbook. And there are some, you know, groups for, you know, exposure and some, you know, like eight week educational groups on intuitive eating. So there are quite a few resources out there. Wow, that's great to know. I'm going to check out the book for sure. As like a final thought, why do you think it is, and maybe this isn't even true, but stereotypically, at least, we think of women as being more susceptible to disordered eating behaviors. Is that true? And if so, why is that? Or why do you think it is? Obviously, that's a huge question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that's kind of a loaded question. Um, You know, we know that women have traditionally been seen as as, um, having eating disorders in higher rates than men. But Um, You know, I don't think we fully have assessed that, you know, because of it being seen as a a female illness, you know, men um, are usually less likely to admit that they have um, issues or to even recognize them when they do. Um, You know, and um, I think probably just because of our patriarchal society, there was, you know, a bigger focus on women looking a certain way for a while. So, Um, dieting, um, you know, for women may have been, you know, going on a little longer. But I think more recently, we're seeing more focus on in the culture on males having a certain type of body. And then there's this, um, you know, the the male cultural ideal aesthetic is, you know, more buff and muscular, whereas for women, it's traditionally been smaller. So, There's some feeling that, you know, we see, you know, in more masculine identifying individuals, more of a focus on weightlifting and maybe eating, um, you know, more protein heavy foods versus in women, we see more restrictive dieting and more cardio. So it may just be that the men are more under the radar um, because the behaviors are a little different that, you know, it's more, you know, we see bodybuilding and, you know, eating more protein as more culturally acceptable or, or is different, right. Than dieting. Do you have any stray thoughts you want to throw in or anything? Just that I, I hope people will check out, you know, intuitive eating and health at every size. I really think that there's such a 
a wealth of opportunities for people to develop a more peaceful relationship with food and their bodies. That's such a good way of putting it, a more peaceful relationship with food and their bodies. I love that. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Some people think Diva's a bitch. Diva Behavior, the podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.